0: Everybody, welcome to another episode of the Be A Beacon podcast. This episode is a little different because as you all know, I've also founded IndoQueer. It's been an issue that's been so important to me. As many of you know, in 2016, I did um, experience a lung collapse, which was due to, um, which later I found out was due to endometriosis. So ever since then, I just began to educate myself and, you know, join other groups and just try to, you know, collaborate with people. Um, that also was dealing with this illness. And through that, I found a wonderful community. I've, I've honestly been blessed where I found a wonderful community. And also, just you know, finding out more about what I can do and what we can do as uh, people of the LGBTQIA+ community. I mean, it hasn't been all sunshine and rainbows. Dealing with this illness and going to different doctors and you know, in hospitals where it has been, you know, uh, bi- uh, various biases happening. Um, so today, I am honored and pleased to have. Dr. Juan Carlos Venice here on the show today, where he is going to just discuss more on his journey with healthcare as an out gay man, and uh, what we can do to continue to bridge the gaps where uh, we can feel comfortable as a community with going to the doctor and what tr- what healthcare specialists can do. You know, around you know, just becoming you know, continuing to get themselves more educated and to put their biases, you know, kind of under. Their, you know, getting rid of their biases, especially with uh, taking care of people. All right, Dr. Venice, thank you so much for joining me today. So uh, I want to discuss more about, you know, what what led you into healthcare.
1: care? Absolutely. Uh, first, I wanted to just say thank you for starting your organization. I think that's such a valuable resource um, for people in the community who are experiencing similar things to network. And that's like, as you know, um, we folks in the LGBT community rely on each other a lot for our support, um, since, you know, the world isn't always designed to be the most uh, friendly to us. Um, but yeah, no, so I wanted to tell you a little bit about myself, of course. Thanks for having me. I am, <laughs> I'm a family physician, so I'm a family doctor, and a lot of people think of that as meaning, like, your first doctor you go to, your, your primary care doctor, someone that maybe you know pretty well that knows you that you have a longer term relationship with um, who maybe takes care of you and other members of your your family meaning that we take care of people of all ages and kind of at different stages in their life uh, they kind of call us the cradle to grave doctors because we that's just kind of what we do and that's what we're passionate about so that was um, the field of medicine that i felt a calling towards and i'm from indiana um, i graduated from medical school here at uh, Indiana University where I now kind of full circle came back and I work there teaching medical students Um, and I just got out of my training about three years ago and so when I left my training I came back here to Indianapolis and I started a um, started seeing my patients in my practice in a community health center as well as in um, a gender affirming medical program that's kind of like a unique program here in Indianapolis it's a Multidisciplinary program um, for the transgender community, and um, so that's been a pretty awesome experience these last three years. And getting into healthcare, I think, was just uh, not unlike a lot of other people. I was drawn to wanting to to help others. I think I saw primary care or being a family doctor as a good way to help people before issues arise or get very serious. Um, and I saw kind of like this bigger picture, which I hope we get to talk about a little bit today when it relates to bias and stigma and the impacts on the health of population of people. But like I, I saw being having a role in primary care as a way to contribute towards improving the health of the public um, and having some kind of impact on health disparities, which that that term, if people aren't aware of what it means, it kind of is this, difference in health that doesn't have to exist um it's preventable and i mean if you think about it from an ethical sense it shouldn't exist we should all be able to enjoy equal opportunities to be healthy but there are these health disparities and they're usually broken down by like if you're gay you're straight or if you're man or woman if you're trans or not and your race also comes into play and so um I think there's a lot that we can do and that I'm trying to do in my career to kind of confront that.
0: And that's wonderful um, that you are. Now, speaking on bias and stigmas, let's definitely hop into it because not only myself, but many others, you know, that have intersections like myself, okay, yeah, I'm already dealing with the bias coming in there's black but then um, mass, I'm masculine I'm a masculine of center uh lesbian so that's uh you know so that's also um d- you know a uh, a bias right there as well and then coming in there personally for what is more related endometriosis being more related as a feminine issue so when they see someone you know that looks like me or even or in even a trans male all uh, going through this it's like you know i you know those those biases definitely impacted because of course with endo and other you know more gender cisgendered related illnesses people automatically kind of have a picture of who the person is supposed to look like that's going through a certain thing um now you i know you've worked you work with all types of populations How do you say, how do we continue to work on these biases and stigmas? Because many people in our community, well, first you have the whole insurance factor and, you know, economic factors that may even prevent one from going to a doctor, which will be on another show. But what would you say as a physician that, you know, we can continue doing to bridge the gap and speak a little more on some of the biases and stigmas that you've seen, you know, being, you know, right in the center of the healthcare system?
1: Yeah, and I can speak to it a little bit from a personal sense too. Not the same experience as yours, and I certainly have my have had my privileges. Being pretty, you know, I like to say that I walk into the doctor in places and I'm read as cisgender, I'm read as male, and I'm read as white, and I'm read as straight. Mm -hmm. Depending on the circle, I mean, people might. See, (laughs) I just I mean, (laughs) you know, like we we are used to switching how we how we display ourselves on the Mm -hmm. outside. But, you know, I can walk into a lot of those spaces and I experience a lot of privilege. But with that, I mean, the same assumptions have been made about me. Maybe like, say, if I am signing a piece of paper, like uh, doing an intake at my primary care. This happened a few years ago where it was totally heteronormative or assumed that I was straight and I wrote in big letters, I'm gay, like none of these questions apply to me. Um, That's, albeit seemingly like maybe more uh, a benign thing or like not as serious, that's a form of stigma, um, heteronormativity, assumptions that are made about us when we're trying to access healthcare are one form of, of stigma or one form of bias that we encounter as LGBT people when trying to access the healthcare system. It can go further and be more toxic with these things that you talked about, like you know assumptions being made about you, um, especially in something that's impacting reproductive health or like internal reproductive organs. And then you can take that further to be like, uh, there, there's even some uh, language in exams where you're not being, um, where if you are not being um sensitive and avoiding making assumptions and kind of letting people have um adequate control over the situation like say if it's someone who's uh, a survivor of uh sexual violence or something like that and like we're we're not being considerate of those things when we are um or even like keeping an open mind about that being a potential when we're starting to approach that patient we're potentially harming them again, traumatizing again, or potentially like missing out important information if we just draw a lot of assumptions. Um, So I'd say, uh, and then there's actually some national data in the LGBT community, as well as specifically in the trans community that is impacted the most by outright discrimination in the healthcare system. Um, And that just shows large numbers of reports of people having felt That they were assaulted or discriminated Mm -hmm. against in a healthcare setting and that as a result they either fear going to get care or they've delayed going to get care so there's different there's all these different levels of bias that can happen and uh, stigma and discrimination that can happen in healthcare and so when you ask me kind of like what i think is the big way that we can start to approach this i think we've done some good things as a culture to like maybe like um, trans voices are making it to mm-hmm. media. Um, we have policies that are going into place that allow same-sex marriage or that, you know, now a Supreme Court decision that helps protect people in their workplaces. Um, you know, all of those things I think are good, like social movements that are happening. Right. But, but, you know, along with that, the healthcare system, our education system, and all these other systems that exist in society, we need to adapt. And I view that personally. And like the thing that I'm most passionate about is education, educating students, educating my colleagues, people who've been in practice a lot longer than me. This is just important. You need to get with the program. Uh, Usually the young ones that are in school right now are actually asking us for the teaching um, or they're sometimes more comfortable with the top topics um, than others. But like, so I think education is a big thing. I could probably go on and on and on but like generally i think education is a big thing and i think visibility of those of us who are lgbt um when we feel comfortable and you know not it, i wouldn't want to force or put anyone to, in that position but i think visibility and diversity within the healthcare system is going to be important because right now our healthcare system like our the the workforce of doctors is not as diverse as the population racially Um, Or when it comes to sexual orientation and gender identity, it could be more representative. And so that's another thing. It's like education, but also recruiting people to work in healthcare from the community.
0: Wow, you have said a word. And and that is so true. (laughs) And, you know, and one thing I I, I noticed that I wanted you to speak more on because we def, I was so impressed when I read more on um, OutCare Health. Um, Can you let us know a little more about that?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So like I said, you could get me talking a lot about that stuff. Hey, and, go
0: ahead. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, everyone
0: uh, wants to hear.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, um, so OutCare Health is an, an organization that was started by a, a student, a then student at IU School of Medicine um, named Dr. Dustin Nowaski. Now he is a psychiatry trainee. So he's in his third year of training in psychiatry. And he started this organization, uh, basically, um, you know, having experienced what a lot of queer people have experienced with, you know, not being able to find a healthcare provider that, that, that understood you, that, that knew about the care that you needed. He started this resource online with the support of the med school to create a directory where people could go. And I think that, you know, we are so used to word of mouth as a community, we, Mm -hmm. there were some resources out there before, and that continue to exist. But the real goal of this was to really aim for it to be a nationally comprehensive resource and an ongoing source of information and resources for the community, as well as for healthcare providers to become more culturally competent, which, you know, that's that term itself. It's kind of hard to imagine being totally competent, but that, that terminology, the way we think about it is being sensitive to cultural differences, being responsive to cultural things, and um, being humble and exhibiting humility when you kind of encounter people who have different experiences than you. So uh, that's kind of like the, the, the main sense. So it's uh, like practically speaking, it's a website. You can go to www.outcarehealth.org and you can search by zip code and choose the type of provider you're looking for and you can locate people and i've used this tool uh for example to help you know when i've gotten a question like oh i from a patient i'm moving to this area and i've used this to help them find someone um and it's something that has a, a growing a quickly growing list of people um and i'd encourage folks listening to spread the word and check it out yourself maybe you can find you know a mental health provider or a specialist or a primary care doctor who's listed themselves as Particularly friendly and aware of the needs of the LGBT community, um, and from that, like we're grow, growing some training opportunities under Dustin's leadership. I'm on the board, and there are several other uh, great uh, contributors and, and 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 just passionate people on the board, and uh, we're doing more training uh, training opportunities for organizations and online. That's my dog? Sorry. <laughs>
0: No worries. <laughs> I'm on I'm on uh, conversations these days where people have their kids in the background. I know what my day job. A guy he had to bring his four year old son in because four year old son's like I want to be included, Daddy. Please I
1: include know so- <laughs> it's the I've had that I've had that happening. One thing I've learned as a doctor doing telehealth is that folks need to change the batteries on your fire alarm, your fire or your smoke detectors. Sorry. The number sure. of people I talk to on the phone that have the little ding going off in their smoke detector has been su- pretty, pretty surprising. So I've gotten some new insights into the, you know my patients' lives.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and I've
1: reminded them, hey, you need to change that battery in your smoke detector. Otherwise, it's not doing much.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If this conversation had happened a few weeks ago, uh, I would have been guilty of the ding. So the, but the battery's been changed, everyone. It's been changed. So... <laughs> yeah and how has it been on a on a lighter note? how has it been for you with you know with with covid and you know and just and doing telehealth? I know for me telehealth has been incredible because I am considered you know high risk immunocompromised because of the of um, the surgery in sixteen. Um, So telehealth has been just wonderful. How has that been for you? And did you, do you see telehealth as a way that our community is more comfortable, you know, with speaking to healthcare professionals besides, you know, instead of just going in physically to an office, where sometimes that fear is even, and that anxiety builds even more?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great topic. I'm glad that we get to talk about it because it's something I've thought about a lot and that, um, my colleagues and I have talked about a lot. So like, first off, how is it going? Um, It's going relatively well. I feel like the healthcare system adapted pretty quickly um, given the circumstances that we all encountered, right? Like this isn't something that um, we've really experienced in our lifetimes before. And, you know, there are certain things from a policy level that like, of course we could talk about and wish that were different. But like, I feel like the healthcare system itself Uh, did some things that we had honestly been trying to do for a long, a long time, but hadn't been able to. And that was to make telehealth more accessible. Um, You know, to try to get policy passed, to make that telehealth legislative, the legislative actions that came through in the cares act that allow like um, us to perform in those services. um, That was actually a really good thing that happened through the, the, The initial legislation that happened with the pandemic broke so like it uh, allows us to provide a lot more services virtually. And we found out I think as a result as doctors like there were things that we thought well you can't do that over telehealth but you actually can. And in many ways it helps improve the experiences of patients. there are some downsides I would say in our system, like patients don't know, is my visit p- going to be in person or are they, yeah. is it going to be on the phone? Like sometimes communicating and getting your message into a larger health organization can be hard um, and getting messages from them. But, you know, we, we've adapted pretty well. So for me, that meant that like initially during the weeks, we rotated in and out of the clinics and took turns and, or I did clinic here from home um, And we kind of went, now I'm back to being in clinic all days, but I still can sprinkle in telehealth visits um, to kind of keep down the overall volume of our patients. And we are still having some folks work from home on some days. So that's kind of like what I've been seeing on the inside of how it's been working where I work. Everywhere has been different, but how it's impacted like I would say hugely, because for a day and a half a week, I exclusively see trans folks um, and do their primary care and their their gender affirming hormones and other, you know, needs that they have related to gender affirmation. And for that community, I mean, like, initially, we were worried that we were going to be able to see new patients, but we figured out how to see new patients. So people weren't waiting or delayed in starting hormones because of the pandemic. For patients who had those same concerns that you share about their immune status and their risk level because of any other chronic health conditions, we were able to um, take care of them despite those concerns and have them feel much more comfortable. For folks who live remotely, because I take care of patients even from neighboring states and from around my state, um, that was much more convenient for them to access the care that they needed that they can't get where they live. well, that they currently can't. I think we're doing, a, I'm working on some efforts to educate people in other places. Right. And we always wanna you know, try to get people more access to care where they are. But those folks have been able to access care more easily. And some different articles have come out talking about how specifically this is positively impact the health of trans folks in many ways. There has been some distress that kind of arose for my patients that I was able to like talk with them on the phone or in this means like in a virtual visit um, using the computer uh, that like, say for example, having to quarantine with family that doesn't accept you or doesn't uh, agree with your um, transition or wasn't accepting or there were some folks who were significantly distressed by their surgery delays because of um, surgeries that, you know, non-urgent surgeries being postponed and so, those were some specific issues that were really hard for folks back in March, April, and May, but we're starting to get through that. And we're scheduling those surgeries again. And people, if they are, and a lot of the few patients I had were younger folks, they've been able to get out of their households or get support, or we were able to connect their families with some support. Not all of those always have the happiest endings that we wish for, but people, people, got through some of those at least the patients that I was interacting with were able to get through that difficult time
0: and how do you recommend, um, especially for the trans community, I've known some personally that are still going through, you know, a lot of difficulty due to the economics and the and the pandemic with uh, getting, what, you know, their hormones and everything else that they need. What do you recommend as a physician for those in the trans community that are still, you know, having trouble obtaining uh, what they need? Do you, um, and everyone, um, I will list um, in the show notes, you'll see more information on how to reach out Care health and find you know find more support in the area near you Um, so what do you recommend Dr. Venice for though for those in the trans community that are still having difficulty
1: so there's a lot of layers to that like when it comes to economic stability and resources there you can always look to your local or state organizations in Indiana when this started happening, our Indianapolis pride organization created like a resilience and resource page where they were listing companies that were like, for example, we have some Amazon distribution centers nearby and they were hiring and their workplace policies are more inclusive. So like you know, from what I know about my patients that work there, so that like that was advertised a lot and spread the word was spread amongst the mm. LGBT community. So right. you can always look and see what resources those organizations have since they're family and they they are helping family, right? right? Um that's a resource and then there's like and depending on your community, we have a hotline that's made possible. It's called two one one.
0: Oh um, yeah, yeah.
1: And so like that's a resource. And then there's a website called Aunt Bertha or Aunt Bertha, A-U-N-T-B-E-R-T-H-A. And that's like a community resource finding search engine um, that is good for folks who maybe need have questions about things that are more basic, like how to avoid getting utilities shut off and um stuff related to housing food insecurity and
0: hormonal support as well yeah, um, yeah okay when it
1: comes well no so that's different so when we get yeah to that's that, what i
0: meant.
1: <laughs> yeah and i got i got it but i i just felt like sometimes people ask these questions and i wanted them to know that there are some good resources out there and then when it comes to transition specifically you i realize it's hard for my patients sometimes to self-advocate but what you could try to do with your healthcare provider, depending on whether it's safe for you to, like say for example, if you're using patches or gel of testosterone, or if you're using patches of estradiol, it may be cheaper to use tablets or injectable estradiol, or it may be cheaper to use um, injectable testosterone. And like, So getting those, if you don't have insurance, you can use resources like goodrx.com Um, prescription savings programs at your local pharmacies can sometimes make like, in Indiana, the prices of one milliliter of testosterone, which can help someone for a month or two, depending on their dose, um, more like maybe a month or a little bit less than a month actually. Um, But that could be about, let's see, in the $10 to $15 range. And so if you think about not having insurance and paying the out-of-pocket price for that, that would be considerably more. The other way to save money is by trying to get a 10-milliliter vial if your healthcare provider will prescribe for a 10-milliliter vial. You have to advocate and say, you know, like, I don't have insurance right now. Is there any way that you can write specifically for a 10-milliliter vial of testosterone? Because you can get that then, and that can last you. If you're using it carefully, I mean, I can't say this necessarily and give this advice. You should get this advice directly from your healthcare provider, but that could last you, you know, 60 days or something if you're taking good care of the vial. Um, every, every person prescribing this is going to give their patient different instructions, but I've talked with some pharmacists that said, if the patient's taking good care of those vials, they can last that long. So that's like a 30 to $40 cost. And you're, so then again, we're like trying to make this as economical as possible. You could find out if there are syringe programs in your community that can help you get needles and syringes. Uh, we have a program like that here in Indianapolis area. And again, it's like the LGBTQ community taking care of the. The, right. the trans community that needs needles. Um, so that's like immediately the, some, some things that come to mind. Um, if you don't have insurance and you need to get blood work, there are also some labs that will do sliding scale. So we have one here in Indiana, um, a network of labs. So you can call around to some local outpatient labs and ask, do you have any kind of sliding scale for folks who don't have insurance? Um, and then you can ask your doctor to give you paper or to mail you paper blood work orders and then you go to that lab. You don't have to go to the hospital lab that they try to have you go to usually because chances are you're gonna get a much higher bill for that.
0: Wow! Yeah, and I'm so glad, Dr. Venice, that you brought that up and you gave these resources. And everyone in the show notes there will be um, some of these links will be available um, where you can uh, find you know find help. We know that right now, especially on our community, um, this this pandemic has really hit us very hard. And I've seen many of you um, just on the socials, you know, struggling to get you know the medical uh, supplies and um, hormonal support that you need. So that's why I definitely wanted to have Dr. Venice on to speak more for us. And Dr. Venice, just in general, um, you, because for many people, this episode, you will be as close to a healthcare professional as they get. And of course, everyone again, you know, please seek um medical advice, you know, from a from another uh physician. Please do not take this episode as uh as a medical appointment or, you know, or just you know, as you know, as your medical, as your medical advice. Period. Uh, but um, or if you have an emergency, of course, please dial nine one one. Um, but Dr. Venice on, on that note I also wanted to just ask you what, what do you recommend for those that are just for us in the community that are just afraid to even get seen to even go to a doctor because of past biases because like for instance I'll tell one of my personal stories when I went to uh, OBGYN and this was before I even knew of endometriosis I was just getting a pap smear and, um, and I've been out for a very long time and I, oh gosh back then I had to be I can't even remember now how old I was but I remember the OBGYN saying to me, you know, unless you switch teams, meaning that unless I actually begin to have uh, uh, penetrational sex uh, with with a cis man, I really have no need to even come to the OBGYN to even get a pap smear. Now for others that may hear that, they may be like, oh, well, I'm not getting real dick. I'm just, you know, I'm maybe getting a dildo in me or something. I don't need, you know, I don't need to, you know, come to the OPGYN or get checked, you know, and I'm just glad I, I wasn't, I didn't just follow that advice, you know, naively, but what do you say to people who have just had horrible experiences with their healthcare providers, and now they're just not, you know, they're not even going to appointments anymore, or they're not even trying to access any free resources because of that fear and because of that. Yeah, soup?
1: well, I mean, unfortunately, that's a very real experience. I've had many patients tell me, you know, this is the, First time I've been to a doctor in a long time, and maybe they're, you know, middle-aged or in their 50s or 60s, and they've told me that. And then I've heard, on the other hand, this number of uh, just like your story, um, even pretty reputable um, gynecologists telling patients, well, you don't need a pap smear if, you know, you don't have sex with someone with a penis, um, but that's medically False uh, information that has and continues to be given as advice to patients, because people are just let's people are just clueless. I mean, right. they haven't gotten the education that they need. Um, and so, if you think about it in this way, these doctors are actually perpetrating harm, and we say that we don't. So, I try to use that example myself to get you know students and my colleagues to think about this. Like, we take this oath to do no harm. If you just assume you know make these false assumptions about people or even don't even just try to learn medically what's going on to be able to serve a more diverse population because like you know you could be a cisgender lesbian who likes to have sex with women with penises like there are trans women who have penises right right? and so like uh that's relevant and you might or you know dildos and mouths can also transmit hpv Um, right and so you know, uh, sharing a dildo or playing together, even just if you know it seems like not super penetrative, you can definitely be exposed to HPV and be at risk for cancer so yeah, if you have um, if you have a cervix, like getting a pap smear is important, regardless of your gender identity, who you have sex with, and I realize that, for example, getting a pap smear might not be something that um, every trans person, like trans masculine person would want to do. It's definitely not, but we're doing research to offer alternatives to the exam, like a self-swap and there's already literature published on it. Thanks to some folks out on the East coast. So like if we, you know, if I ask the right questions and I can ask a patient and find out that they don't want to do that exam, you know, like I can help offer them an alternative and explain why, or we can do the exam and I can say, you know, this is a way, one way we can do it. What's going to be the most comfortable way for you? At any point, if you're uncomfortable, we'll stop. Stopping means that we do this or that. So, um, it can healthcare can look a lot better. But for those folks that are so like concerned and scared, because I know that's very true. One one easy thing, if you're comfortable doing this, or maybe someone you love or trust could do this is they could call a doctor's office near you and say like, you know, how comfortable or how many do you take care of transgender people and just see how the staff on the phone answers. Um, It can give you a lot. Of course, you know, every front front, the person answering the phone may not always have the most experience, but maybe someone that you trust could say, you don't have to identify yourself. It's, you know, it is scary to have to call and do this. Um, It's not fair that people have to do this but that's one way to maybe ease some fears. Cause you might find out that like, of course, um, you know, we don't have a lot of openly trans folks here. We don't do hormones or know very much about that, but we want to take care of people. And you might get an answer like that that can be really reassuring. So that's one thing you can do. And then you can identify or look for those places that have put themselves out there. And um, I'd say like you talked about the socials and like people connecting there and sharing their stories mm-hmm. you can often throw that question out there like does anyone know of anyone in this general area of this state that would be and I know sometimes it's crazy that we have to travel so far to get the care that we feel comfortable with um, but that's sometimes you know that's just sometimes the way it is I, I wish that there was more you know, there have been movements that have developed little, like, I feel like it's called Q card or something. Um, There were these, and that was, I think, a youth led movement. I can't remember what state, but they were like these little cards that could explain some definitions for like, this is my sexual orientation. This is my, you know, this is, these are some important things about me that you could give to a healthcare provider. And it had some education on there so that it kind of takes the burden off you to have to like explain yourself all the time because that's a large thing, especially trans folks have to teach their healthcare providers about their care and you know, that's wrong. Um, so I, don't, I don't know if I can give a much, I, I, it's, to me I view this as an urgent issue and it makes me sad to imagine that people are going through this experience. And, and not that I've, my experience is the same at all. Like I've said, I benefited from privilege, but I've definitely experienced mm-hmm. not being able to find a doctor. I've experienced some assumptions in my own. And so that's just all been fuel for me um to to do something about this
0: right and what have been, what's been, you know, personally, your experiences? As of course, when, you know, on the surface we see, oh, he can g- get away with it. For those that may see your photo and they say, oh, well, he shouldn't have any problems. He cis. He looks, he can pass for straight. But can you tell maybe some of our, uh, more of our cis gays, you know, that are listening to this episode, you know, that may, you know, that do relate to you, what have, what have been your experiences, you well, know, personally? Yeah.
1: Yeah, one thing that we haven't talked about is getting adequate, uh, like sexual care. That's something that could be a whole other episode, but like accessing or finding someone that you can get uh, testing with or information about PrEP or prescribed PrEP Mm -hmm. um, has been, in my past experience, a challenge at times. And then finding a mental health provider, if I wanted to talk about like anxiety type things with finding someone that I felt comfortable with whether or not the issues I wanted to talk about were related to my sexual orientation. um, But they were, it would have helped to have someone that kind of just understood where I was at baseline and that I didn't have to explain myself to or didn't seem like I was teaching something to them about my identity. Plus talking to someone when you can relate on some sense of identity, I think matters. So those were some times when I struggled. And then you know, de- helping a family member of mine access care who's also LGBT um, was even more difficult because of their experience and their gender, like finding someone who matched that was, was was able to help them was also a challenge. I'd say those are the biggest things. I forgot to throw out that something that I learned about that helped uh, me um, a few years ago was a resource online called uh NURX or NURX or I don't know how they say it N-U-R-X and then there's other apps called like Plush Care I think and these are apps that you can use to get prep and I think that mainly that's if you uh, you have insurance but they're apps that without having to visit someone in person you can get prep delivered to your home and testing delivered to your home that's adequate for the type of sex you have if you folks didn't know if you can take away one bit of knowledge i will throw this out there if you use your mouth during sex or if you have anal sex like you need to get sti testing in those locations a lot of folks will just try to give you a urine test and then you could go a long time without knowing that you had chlamydia in your bottom or you know you had gonorrhea in your throat and unknowingly were exposing other people to it and not getting the best care so Unfortunately, we have to then again, educate our providers. Hey, I heard that, you know, when I use my mouth, you know, during sex, I have to get an oral gonorrhea swab. I heard about oral gonorrhea. Uh, You know, can you help me get that? Um, But yeah, so I'd say that, like, that's been the most difficult thing for me, especially because now that I'm a physician, like when I've accessed healthcare, I can recognize it being bad. And then it's almost like, Well, if you're the gay doctor in town you know all the other gay doctors, (laughs) you can't go somewhere where you can be private, you know. So, uh, you know, that's like my privileged person problem. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it definitely impacts us all in lots of different ways.
0: Brandon, right, I wanted to go back before I touch on the gay doctor. Uh, on one bit, I wanted to go back where you were mentioning the swap test for those that are trans masculine and and may feel uncomfortable with getting a pap. And I've seen on many forums people, you know, have had uh those concerns. Can you? I don't know, you know, if you you can or not. But you know, would you be able to speak more on that for those that are curious about that?
1: Yeah. So there's some fairly good evidence to say that it's an acceptable alternative to doing the pap smear in a patient who doesn't want to do the exam, like with a speculum tool that's used to look at, you know, the anatomy um, and to be able to take a sample from the cervix. There's an option to potentially do a self-swab where you go to the bathroom and take a swab from your frontal canal um, to get hopefully enough of those cells so they can do an HPV test. And then you can learn whether or not you have been exposed or you have a a chronic HPV infection um, that might be one of the higher risk HPVs that can be associated with cancer. So it's kind of like, if I'm really uncomfortable with doing a PAP, what's the better option? Not getting any information and just foregoing it or going and getting this swab potentially with someone that can offer it to me and then maybe if that comes back positive, then I'm more likely to go get a PAP or I go to see a gynecologist who's willing to do, um, or you know, a family doctor who's willing to do a PAP with my trusted person there and maybe I can take an anxiety medication to help me relax during the exam. Or maybe even you know, in some circumstances, some gynecologist would even use some anesthesia to be able to help for that. The same goes for like if you need birth control and you want an IUD, an IUD is a great option. Um, you could ask about the options of seeing someone to have that done under anesthesia. Um, Of course you have to consent when you haven't taken any medication and you're totally making that decision. And if you're having the exam with a trusted person, like in the office, you would want to have them there uh, so that they can help you remember every step of what happened in the case that you don't remember everything because of the anxiety medicine, if you weren't completely under general anesthesia. But yeah, that test it's, itself like if it comes back abnormal the next best thing is to do an exam and so i wouldn't do the test if you if an exam was off limits um period because then you know but then again maybe if you get the result it would change your mind it's just it's one of those things that you have to talk about with the provider to make sure that you know it's the right decision for you but it's definitely an option
0: Right. And thank you so much, Dr. Venice, for speaking on that. I'm sure a lot of the audience uh, appreciated you going into that. And you know, now to go into what you mentioned, do you get that a lot? As far as you being the gay doctor, oh wait, you're the gay doctor. Do you get that a lot? <laughs> and how does uh, that make you feel? I mean,
1: sometimes I think that people are probably sick of me not shutting up about you know, LGBT health issues. (laughs) oh God, here he comes with, you know, his um, soapbox. But I mean-
0: It's important.
1: It's important and I can afford to be uh, more vocal. We've been having conversations, you know, with everything going on around racism and and talking more publicly and openly about racism in in higher education and the healthcare settings. Um, That's just like where I work. So we're talking more about this. And, you know, it's really exhausting to depend on the people that are at the end of it, who are at the disadvantaged end of this oppressive system, right? To Mm -hmm. expect them to have to do all the labor, that's wrong. And I still believe that's the case. But like, if I have the ability and energy to do it, I'm going to, Um, but I also, you know, and fortunately I've had some great colleagues who aren't LGBT, but who are allies who've also been outspoken. And so, I don't know, it's kind of one of those things where, like, yeah, and then I've gotten, uh, yeah, I just, I think that that's kind of how I'm becoming known here locally, in some senses, and it doesn't bother me totally. Um, I don't know if it'll get old after a while, but, yeah, I just... I I wonder sometimes if people are getting tired, <laughs> tired of hearing me like a broken record, but
0: never keep on going, keep yeah. on going. We appreciate you. And on that, what is your just lastly, this has just been very wonderful. I'm so looking forward to sharing this with all of you. This has been very enlightening. Uh, Dr. Venice, I want to personally thank you for coming on here. And what are some last words you want to leave with the LGBTQ plus community, you know, is anything any advice or anything you just wanted to say.
1: Oh wow. So that's a, that's a big thing. There's so many things I want to say, but I'd say the most the most powerful thing for me about working with my community, my LGBTQ community and especially my trans patients is kind of recognizing that strong resilience that people have had in face of all this adversity and this just general society that isn't like it's just so heteronormative and cis normative right and so I want people to keep being themselves keep uh being kind and supportive of each other because honestly if we're going to get any change it's only going to be because we have supported each other through all of this um and so you know kind of keep continuing to support each other lift each other up remember you know uh that's how we're going to get through this. And, um, when you're able, you know, get involved in the advocacy. Um, cause that can also be a great way to fight the, the stigma that we've dealt with personally. It can, it can be actually a way I think for me has helped me grow more comfortable in who I am, um, by getting with like-minded people or people who share some parts of my experience and, and making some change happen. Um, that's if you can. I don't expect everyone in our community to do that. But just at the minimum, remember you're great. And um, there's many things that there, there are many things to celebrate about you every day. So that's my cheesy last bit.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Venice. And we can never have enough cheese on the be a beacon podcast. The cheese
1: is my favorite. <laughs> it's my favorite food um they're my favorite jokes yeah I love cheese
0: same then everyone <laughs> on that note uh let's again shout out to Dr. Venice for coming on I would love to have you back doctor you know for, for yeah you know we
1: gave you a lot of hints that there is lots of different things that we can talk about here yes. there's so much left to talk about but I appreciate it thanks for the invitation
0: of course and Everyone, and here's my cheesy end note that they're used to every episode. Everyone, I know I say this every episode, but we have got to continue to be there for each other. There's been so much turmoil within um, toward us in the LGBTQIA+ community. So the last thing we need to continue doing is um, having a lot of inner letter drama and you know arguments and stuff. When we have a, a society out there that want us dead, they don't want us in our right frame of mind they don't want us healthy so everyone just definitely continue to take care of each other we do have a responsibility to each other and dr venice is a is a beacon in our community he has became a beacon in his own life in his own journey and he is sharing that with us through his health care ministry and as always, if you want to reach out to me, you can shoot me an email. You can find me on the socials. Uh, my informa- you'll have my information in the show notes as well as um, Dr. Venice's information, more on OutCare Health and any other links that, you know, any other helpful links that he would like to share with everyone today. All right, continue to be good to each other and take it easy.